I'm going to talk about uh, prayer that invades the impossible uh, from James chapter 5, eventually. One of those mornings. <laughs> uh, have, you ever, have you ever had God put something in your spirit that you knew was him? Maybe about your future? Maybe you, you know, maybe as parents, sometimes our kids go through tough stuff. And we're praying for our kids, but we have this picture in our spirit of their future. We, we have it there, and it becomes part of our, our prayer life and our journey of faith with our family. Maybe that's happened to you. Maybe, maybe God put something in you to start a business, and you see this picture, this preferred future. Uh, maybe the Lord uh, put in you a vision for ministry. You're not quite sure how you'd ever fulfill it or it'd be unfolded, but there's this thing in your spirit. Um, sometimes you go through a crisis and um, your faith is shaken. Cheryl and I, our family went through one a few years ago and I was surprised um, at, at the attacks uh, emotionally, psychologically against my faith. I mean, I've been you know, a Christian for a lot of years preaching Jesus for a lot of years. But some of the deep-rooted doubts that were in my soul when I was a teenager, when I was a young kid, or whatever, all of a sudden, some of these doubts surfaced again, started in my soul warring against the things that I knew to be true. And um, I was surprised by it. Um, it was a great time for me to remind myself of what I believed, why I believed it, um, promises, scriptures, the authority of God's word. It was a, it was a great season, but it wasn't a lot of fun. Uh, it, was, it was difficult. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. How many can say amen to that? Sometimes we can't see what God is doing during certain seasons uh, in our life. Uh, sometimes in regard to some of the circumstances unfolding personally or around us uh, in the church or uh, even in our nation. I, I was wondering this week, and you'll have to forgive me for who I am, but I was wondering what people thought during the Revolutionary War. You wonder what they thought? You know, they signed the declaration, they were all fired up, Declaration of Independence. All of a sudden, these ships start pulling up, guys in red uniforms start jumping out, pulling around cannons, carrying guns, firing at their kids, destroying their property that they had carved out of the wilderness. You ever wonder what people thought about their faith in God? You ever wonder what the church went through during that time? Do you ever think there were moments of doubt, confusion? I was wondering what people were thinking during the Civil War. You know, Abraham Lincoln wasn't the most popular president back then. People hated him. Uh, South hated him. North hated him. Families divided. Brothers went to battle against brothers. Some fought for the South, some fought for the North. Can you imagine what that time was like for people? Just confusing. What did it do to their faith? I wondered about the Great Depression in the 30s. You know, when the stock market tanked, people lost everything. There were no jobs, just the despair that people felt back in the 19th. I wonder what people thought about their faith. I wonder what the church was thinking during that time. Of course, the civil rights movement is a little closer uh, to many of us, the 60s. Uh, boy, our nation was divided, highly divided. When you watch videos on YouTube or whatever of the riots uh, that that went on during that time. Uh, just, I'm gonna say this word, I don't know if I should. Just the ignorance in people. I don't know if you know it or not, but we have a, 
we have a tendency to never think we're wrong, but to think everyone else is wrong. Have you noticed that? We, we have a tendency to always think everyone else is wrong, but that we're right, and we judge the world based on how we're right and, and how they're wrong. I hate to say it, but it's, it's really true. We're very afraid of being wrong. We always have a, a tendency to want to protect or... It's just interesting when I watch those videos. I just can't believe how wrong people are and yet how right they thought they were. Just highly ignorant. Anyway, sorry, that's not the sermon. I'm just talking. I'm thinking out loud. I'm inviting you to think out loud because we're being pressured from a lot of sides, Christian, non-Christian, to think certain ways. And I don't know if you think for yourself. Um, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Anyone say amen to that? We believe in something we can't see, something that is invisible. Sometimes it looks insignificant on the surface, but I know whom I believed. And he, I'm persuaded he's able to guard that which I've entrusted him against that day. Could anyone say amen? This last week, obviously a difficult week, uh, watching things unfold at the White House, I think many of us were shocked in a variety of different ways. It's been a hard year. I mean, it's been a hard year already, and then add that to you know, emotionally uh, fatigued people who have just had a, had, a, had a tough year. Many of us were horribly grieved, uh, angry. I don't know about you, I was stunned. I, I was just stunned. I don't know, I don't think I was surprised. You know, we, we, let, we let riots and anarchy go on all summer in Portland and Seattle and, you know, New York and, and Chicago. I mean, we let, we let this kind of thing go on all summer and now we're surprised that it showed up at the White House. I, Sometimes what people think surprises me. That's a different sermon. Um, But one of the things I I felt compelled to do was say nothing. One of the things I felt compelled to do was to simply listen and try to discern You know, when it comes to leadership for you as a husband or you as a father or for you as a business owner or a ministry leader, um, leadership is not all about decisions and direction. Leadership is about discernment. It's important to make the right decisions. Uh, and, And discernment allows you to hear and to listen and to take in. Sometimes, unfortunately, Uh, husbands and wives get in a situation where they're not really listening, they're not really hearing one another, and they're trying to make decisions or give direction without really discerning. And that's highly frustrating. And, And so for me, as someone with a responsibility to try to lead my family, my wife, my kids, Uh, Boy, I've put my mouth, my foot in my mouth so many times. I just felt it was important for me to try to listen. And um, some of the things that I felt like the Lord might have given me, you can judge this, because I'm going to give you some of them here uh, this morning before we get into the sermon. But there were some things I felt the Lord gave me uh, to help me uh, discern, give direction. One of the things... uh, the Lord gave all of us as pastors uh, of the Foursquare Church, our, our president, his name is Randy Remington. Um, he, he sent out a communication uh, Thursday morning, kind of in response to what happened on Wednesday. And he talked a little bit about his prayers that morning. And I wanted to read it to you because I felt like it was, it was worth um, uh, hearing. I'm going to put it up on the screen as well as we have hard copies if you're interested at all out in the foyer. Uh, if you'd like to make them part of your prayer uh, life during this season. So this is what he wrote. This is Randy Remington, pastor, president, if you want to call him that, of our denomination. Uh, he said, today, 
as I humbled myself before the throne of God in prayer, I grieved and prayed for our nation. Uh, During these 21 days of fasting and prayer as a four-square movement, we are uniting our voices in believing prayer. Today, my prayers centered around the church. I think it's interesting, Thursday morning, his first concern was the church. Today, my prayers centered around the church and our witness in the world. Number one, he said, this, this is what I think we should do. Pray for a spirit of consecration and holiness to come upon the church in America. Number two, pray for a spirit of compassion to come over the church in the United States so that we will begin seriously to live out the lifestyle of Jesus in our communities. By the way, there's a great video on day 10. Uh, Philip Perkins, our keyboard player this morning, uh, did in response to this scripture for our 21 days of prayer and fasting. It was really good. Thank you, Philip. Uh, Number three, ask the Lord of the church to help us reclaim a strong prophetic voice Number four, uh, pray for a spirit of repentance to fall upon the church in America that would cause us to turn from all idolatry and to turn back to God with our whole hearts, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Number five, pray for a spirit of courage to rise within the church, to commit to enduring whatever it takes to see the fulfillment of God's purposes in our nation and the nations of the world. Number six, pray uh, for a movement of the spirit that creates a dramatic cultural transformation in the United States. You You know, some of you have heard me talk about how there was a revival back in the early 1900s that took place in America uh, on the West Coast. Uh, Portland, the city of Portland, shut down for the lunch hour because everybody was gathering together in prayer, prayer meetings. Powerful. Especially in light of thinking about what Portland's like today. God's spirit can do amazing things. I thought that was a great prayer. Pray for a movement of the spirit that creates a dramatic cultural transformation in the United States. Number seven, ask the Lord to awaken the church to the temporary nature of the nations and to the eternal nature of the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, I feel like sometimes we get sucked into nationalism, which is a form of idolatry, worshiping the country. I think we should be thankful. I think we should honor. I'm so proud of those who fight for our nation. Just have to keep it in context. Pray to awaken the church to the temporary nature of the nations and the eternal nature of the kingdom of God. Number eight, pray that humility and courage will be given to Christians in places of leadership within government, the courts, law schools across the nation so that they will stand for a just and righteous basis for law. Could someone say amen to that? We need the church and those who are called within the church who are called to influence culture and community through politics or position or principles, things like, you know, uh, abortion, uh, things that have to do with uh, legalized homosexual marriage and transgender issues. I, you know, I always hesitate to bring those things up because when, when I bring them up to talk about them, I always see people walking out of the church uh, thinking that we're a homophobic, a bigoted culture. We're not. Love people. Well, we do believe it. God's ways the right way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes in love and clear conscience, we have to 
uh, contend and pray for what is right and true. And uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Uh, number, last one, number nine. Pray that the churches in our community and area will preach the gospel of the kingdom of God with power. I, I just really appreciated how the president of our denomination helped us as pastors turn our focus on praying for the church, okay? Um, because the Bible says we're not supposed to judge the world. We're supposed to judge the church. We don't expect the world we live in to live in a way that lines up with God's word. You, you can't do that. That's ignorance. And sometimes... Uh, we try to project a way of life to people who don't know the Lord as though they should. And, and that's just not right. But there is a responsibility we have as the body of Christ to live our faith and walk out our faith and contend for the faith that was once given to the saints. And so I, I just feel like it's really important that he, he focused our attention back on what we're responsible for and we are responsible to carry out our faith and be the body of Christ in the day we live light and salt in the world Jesus said if the salt loses its saltiness what good is it except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot another thing that uh, really ministered to me um, let Courtney Janos come on out here Courtney uh, posted on Facebook a post. I really appreciate it. I better leave this for you, okay? Um, and, and when I read it, it's actually a repost uh, of, from someone else, apparently a man, because it'll be mentioned at the end uh, of, of, of the uh, post. But when I read it, I said, man, that's Courtney, because she has such a love for Jesus and a faith in her heart and a love for children. She does a daycare with, with children, and she's a mom at heart who loves her kids, and it really blessed me when she, I read her post. So, Courtney, would you read it for us? And I'll see if... You might want to push that button and hold it down until it turns green. There we go. So, yes, I didn't write this, but uh, it really encouraged me. Um, I had, you know, social media can be really bad because it can get us thinking negatively, but it also can do the opposite, and this definitely did that for me. But before I read this, I just felt kind of sad for the kids growing up in this time because, you know, it's just us. Uh, there's so much unknown, and it's scary, and I was like, you know, it's just kind of a bummer for our kids to have to go through what they're potentially going to go through and already have. Um, and then I read this, and it really, really changed my perspective, and this is what I'm choosing to believe. So it says, don't feel sorry for or fear for your kids because the world they are going to grow up in is not what it used to be. God created them and called them for the exact moment in time that they're in. Their life wasn't a coincidence or an accident. Raise them up to know the power they walk in as children of God. Train them up in the authority of his word. Teach them to walk in faith knowing that God is in control. Empower them to know they can change the world. Don't teach them to be fearful and disheartened by the state of the world, but hopeful that they can do something about it. Every person in all of history has been placed in the time that they were in because of God's sovereign plan. He knew Daniel could handle the lion's den. He knew David could handle Goliath. He knew Esther could handle Haman. He knew Peter could handle persecution. He knows that your child can handle whatever challenge they face in their life. He created them specifically for it. Don't be scared for your children, but be honored that God chose you to parent the generation that is facing the biggest challenges of our lifetime. Rise up to the challenge. Raise Daniels, Davids, Esthers, and Peters. God isn't scratching his head wondering what he's going to do with this mess of a world. He has an army he's raising up to drive back the darkness and make him known all over the earth. Don't let your fear steal the greatness of God placed on them. I know it's hard to imagine them as anything besides our sweet little babies, and we just want to protect them from anything that could be hard on them. But they were born for such a time as this. 
Just some thoughts from a dad who is rocking his sleeping baby and thinking about what a crazy day it's been in our country. And I, when I read this, I was really thinking about my kids, but it's true for all of us. Every single one of us is here for a purpose, and God knows that we're going to be here during this time, and he has a plan for us. So don't be afraid. Amen. Thank you, Courtney. I think that girl could preach. <clears throat> anyway, I've got one last thing for you. Um, this was... Apparently, I was on Facebook a little more than I ever am this last week, checking you out, seeing what you were saying. But another friend posted a, a video, and then I went and found it, uh, actually listed to more of the sermon. But uh, this, is a, this is a sermon by Billy Graham, and uh, it was preached 50 years ago, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, 1973. It's only about a 49-second clip, but uh, he's preaching out of Habakkuk, and, uh, or Habakkuk, however you pronounce his name, but, uh, you know, if you've read the book of uh, Habakkuk, uh, he's bummed, and he's saying, God, what in the world are you doing uh, in, the, in the world today? You know, tell me what you're doing, and God, God, here's what God says. God says, I won't tell you what I'm doing. If I did, you wouldn't understand it. Let's watch Billy Graham. Habakkuk said, Lord, please tell me what you're doing. And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you, Habakkuk. Because if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't you think God's given up and God's abdicated and God's left the throne? He hasn't. He's still on the throne. And those of us that know him put our trust in him and him alone. I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. When all the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. Amen. 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 So I was, I was so thankful for those things and, you know, the wisdom of God to speak through so many different things, so many different people uh, in my life this last week. I really, I really appreciate it. I also had a, an amazing prayer time yesterday morning with my wife and um, it, it kind of was, was spurred on by uh, by Mike Maxim's uh, devotional yesterday morning. Uh, he was responding to Nehemiah chapter one. If you're familiar with Nehemiah, um, some friends, family returned from Jerusalem during a time when uh, Israel was in captivity in Babylon and, and Nehemiah, uh, he wanted to find out how they were doing in Jerusalem. So he said, how's it going? And they said, it's terrible, it's terrible, the walls torn down of the city, the, the gates are burnt, and it says, Nehemiah sat down and he wept and he fasted and he prayed, and if you read the story, for about 30 days or so, he, he prayed, and, and uh, uh, Mike did a great job of talking about lament, how lament is part of the Bible, there's a strong theme of grief and lament, and and at times when we're just brokenhearted in regard to what has happened in our life or what we see. And I appreciated Mike doing a great job with that and giving us permission to grieve because I was still grieving yesterday morning in regard to things that have been happening in our nation. And, uh, but then Mike said, but then he got up and he began rebuilding. And that's what God has called us to do get up and begin to rebuild from there and and so I was I was praying with Cheryl and uh, um, I, I started praying a verse out of Second um, uh, Chronicles chapter 22 where if you remember the story of Jehoshaphat how uh, you know there were three different kings that were coming to destroy Israel they were far more powerful than Israel was they were overwhelmed and so uh, Jehoshaphat called a fast, encouraged the nation to pray. And before the nation, he knelt down and he said, God, we don't know what to do. 
but our eyes are on you. And if you know that story, he prayed that prayer, and there was a prophet among them who said, don't be afraid. The battle is not yours, but God's. Stand firm, see the salvation of God. And so what Jehoshaphat decided to do was to send out the choir in front of the army. And uh, that's a little unusual military tactic. And uh, uh, my wife, I, I think she got a word of wisdom, maybe word of knowledge at that point as I was saying, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes on you. And of course, she knows the story. And immediately she said, I think I know why Jehoshaphat sent the choir first. I, I think he sent the choir first to keep the eyes of Israel on God. Because if they went to battle with swords and spears, it would be so easy to get intimidated. It'd be so easy to start focusing on their own strength or their own skill. But instead, Jehoshaphat has the wisdom to send the choir first so that the nation had to keep its eyes on God. And if you know the story, of course, God did an amazing miracle. And uh, they were miraculously uh, delivered. I so appreciated that just that insight the Lord gave her as we were praying. And Lord, I just uh, I, I just want to ask you to help us as individuals, uh, as a church, Lord, to keep our eyes on you. Lord, I want to thank you for the scripture uh, the angel gave to Mary that said nothing is impossible with God. Lord, and we see it over and over again throughout the Old Testament, all these moments in history uh, where it just seemed overwhelming. And yet, Lord, you proved yourself faithful and powerful over and over and over again. So we just want to thank you for that today. We take our place this morning trusting in you. We thank you for your love and your presence here today in Jesus' name. Could we all say amen together? Amen. So now I have a little homily, a little sermonette I'd like to take about 15 minutes or so to, to do with you. I, I, I want to talk about the power of prayer. The title of this little portion of our morning's prayer that invades the impossible. And I, I'm, I'm obviously trying to motivate you to pray here. Uh, with this little message, but um, I, I hope maybe you'll listen with your spirit, uh, and maybe the Lord will speak to us. I'm in James chapter 5, verse 13 through 18. Uh, James says, is there any among you who is in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Uh, let them call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise them up. Uh, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was a man just like us. Could we say it together? Elijah was a man just like us. I... I think many of us are familiar with this story. You could probably tell it this morning. Um, some of us are, are a little more new to our Bible, so if you'd allow me just a couple minutes, I'll tell this story. <laughs> My wife always prays that I won't ad-lib. But anyway, um, so I'm going to try to tell this story kind of briefly. E Elijah lived in a time uh, when Israel was turning their back on God, turning away from God. They were starting to follow the idols of Baal and Asheroth. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us. We, we don't understand what that means. It means a lot. It, it's exactly what's happening in America today. See, the idol of Baal 
and Asheroth. Idols are ideologies. They're, they're the way we think. They're the ideas we live by. They're the values that dictate and rule cultures. The nation of Israel had adopted, had been shifted in their ideology, in their ideas toward Baal and Asheroth, which allowed them more hedonistic expression in their lives. They could throw off the bondage of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sex limited to, to marriage. Can I say it that way? Is that okay? Uh, just guidelines in, in the Bible. And so they could, they, could, they could throw that off. There was temple prostitutes. There was uh, just a, a real, quote-unquote, freedom. And, uh, and so they were interested in that, of course, like all cultures are, all human beings are, huge temptation. Um, nevertheless, uh, so they adopted uh, the worship of Baal and Asherah. There were other things. There was the, the hunger and the desire for success and money. Materialism was huge to the point where they would literally sacrifice their children for the favor of Baal or Asheroth, which, you know, sadly in our own culture, you know, there are people that have abdicated their responsibilities, parents. And we live in a culture that is very much like biblical culture. When we talk about idols like Baal and Asheroth, we're not, we're not talking about some foreign world. We're talking about our, our own culture, our own society, how we have turned our back on God to pursue our own gods and to live our own ways with our own values and our own vision for life. Let me give you an example. We have a culture right now that is moving so rapidly away from biblical values. And by the way, the only reason why there are biblical values is because God loves us so much. He wants us to be happy and he wants us to be blessed. But we, and by the way, we need restraint in order for that to happen. We need self-control. One of the fruits of the Spirit, self-control. Anyway, we live in a society that wants to throw off restraint. And rather than allow God uh, to be God, at one time, we used to make a pledge at school, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. And of course, that's being removed from our school systems. But... There is also legislation within our nation right now, states that want to remove sexual identity from birth certificates. You think that's strange, but it's in motion. So now your doctor can't go, oh boy, <laughs> oh girl. You as a parent can't go, oh boy, oh girl. Instead, at a certain age, it will be the choice of the child. Do you imagine how confusing that'll be at eight years old? Do you understand the motive behind it is to make ourselves God? We'll be our own gods, we'll make our own decisions. We'll choose our own direction, our own course. Now, there were people concerned about this way back with Roe versus Wade and abortion that were concerned about where things were going, but of course the church was asleep and you know, we don't want to ruffle any waves. And, and so we just you know, kept hoping it would go away. We could sweep it under a carpet. This is our nation. So we don't live in a nation under God anymore. We live in a foreign country. We're foreigners in a land. And the Bible talks about that a lot. First Peter, he talks about how we are foreigners in a land. We, we are, and I'm not trying to be critical of anyone. I'm just telling you the truth. Is that okay? This is who we are and what's happening in our world today. So this is what was happening in Israel. Okay, They, they had turned their back on God. They, they had fallen away from God to the point where God, in his love, he talked to his friend named Elijah. And he said to Elijah, his friend, 
Elijah, it's not going to rain except by your word. And Elijah began to pray, and it stopped raining. For three and a half years, blue sky. And it was devastating. Devastating for the culture. They're, they're agri, uh, agricultural society. They've got livestock. Uh, they've got the vineyards, uh, vegetables. I mean, they had to grow everything. They were an agricultural society. And with no rain for three and a half years, can you imagine what that did to their economy? They were absolutely devastated. Now, people blamed Elijah because Elijah prophesied there's going to be no rain except by my word. And, of course, people got angry at Elijah, but it wasn't Elijah. It was the fact that people had rejected God. God, in his love, wanted to call them back, and that's why that's why he stopped the rain. You see, in the promise in the Old Testament, God said, I will be your God, you will be my people. If you follow me and obey my commands, I will send my commands, excuse me, I will send the early and the late rains. That was God's promise. He wanted to bless his nation. I'm going to give you prosperity. I'll send the early and the late rains. So when he withheld the rain, it was obvious to people that they were not following God. Now the false prophets and the leaders of Israel were saying, don't be afraid, God is with us. Sorry. And Elijah said, it's not true, you're not following God. God doesn't want our life to be sourced by anything that cannot truly sustain us or satisfy us. He loves us. He, he, he wants to give us life and he wants to give it abundantly. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Our tendency, yours and mine, is to look to other wells for sources of life. It's just our nature. We can't blame anyone. It's just our nature all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not bashing anyone or putting anyone down. I'm just simply stating the facts. God, in his mercy, three and a half years later, came to his friend named Elijah, the prophet, and said, I can't take it anymore. My people are suffering too much. I'm going to send rain. So Elijah went to Ahab, said, it's going to rain. But first, I want you to bring all your people, all your cronies, all your leaders. Bring all your people and all the prophets of Baal and Asheroth to Mount Carmel. We're going to set up an altar. You build your altar. You put the wood on it. You put the bull on it for sacrifice. But don't light it. Then I'll build an altar. I'll put my wood on it and my sacrifice but I won't light it. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, yes! Because they knew the Old Testament. And they knew in the history of the word that God was a God of power and a God of might. And if a prophet was a man of God, God would show himself through power and through might. I love the verse in... uh, I think it's 1 Kings 17 where uh, Elijah raised this little boy from the dead and the woman said, now I know you're a man of God. Wouldn't that be a great uh, standard to, to be able to you know, graduate from Bible college, <laughs> raise the dead? Okay, now I know you're a man of God. Here's your pastor license. Anyway, I'm so thankful I didn't have to go through that one. But yeah, anyway. So, uh, of course, they all gathered. Prophets of Baal built their altar, danced around, prayed all day. Some of you know the story. Nothing happened. Elijah, of course, he, he taunted them mercilessly. Cry out louder. Surely he's a god. Maybe he's on vacation. Maybe he's in the toilet. <laughs> you know, one of those portable bucks or something. Anyway. Um, anyway, nothing happened. So, 
at the time of the evening sacrifice, he pulled together 12 stones, the old altar, uh, old-fashioned, according to the Bible, old-fashioned, pulled together 12 stones, uh, rebuilt the altar of God on Mount Carmel. Apparently it had fallen down, disrepair, rebuild the altar of God, put the wood, placed the sacrifice, drenched it with water. You know the story. Then he prayed, God in heaven, creator of heaven and earth, so that all these people will know. Send your fire. Of course, fire consumes the sacrifice and the altar. All the people follow down. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. They repented, basically. Then Elijah said, grab all the prophets of Baal. This is the part that Christians have trouble with, the idea of mercy. He said, grab all the prophets of Baal, and he had them killed. Now, we don't like that. I don't like that. But in the Old Testament, the reason why God did things like that was because false ideology will destroy a generation. And the way to get rid of it was to kill it. So he killed them all. In front of a merciful God. Who is loving and by the way holy. And forgiving. And yet insistent on the truth. Well, at that point, uh, Elijah said to, a- a- to, to Ahab, the king, you better get out of here, it's going to rain. Now it's blue sky. It hasn't rained for three and a half years, okay? There's not a cloud in the sky. You better get out of here, it's going to rain. And then he goes up to the top of Mount Carmel to pray, and I'm going to read uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 41 through 46. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing. So went back to praying. Seven times Elijah said, go back, look, see, nothing. Verse 44, the seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising up. It's not much but there's this little cloud. He's holding his hand out over the Mediterranean Sea from Mount Carmel. There's a cloud about the size of a man's hand. Elijah said, well, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and get the sand fat out of here because you're going to be knee deep in mud in just a little bit. Scott Hines' version. Verse 45. (laughs) Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose. A heavy rain started falling. And Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came upon Elijah, tucked his cloak into his belt, ran ahead of Ahab in a chariot. Guy could run all the way to Jezreel, which is about 17 miles away. Okay, great story. You know, I love it. But what I love, Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed. He, he, He prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. Then he prayed and God gave rain, earth produced its crops. Now why did Elijah have to pray? If God said it wasn't going to rain, why did Elijah have to pray? If God said it was going to rain, why did Elijah have to pray? Why not just trust God? He's in control, he's sovereign over all. Thank you for asking. God works through people. He wants a relationship with all mankind. He gave mankind dominion on the earth in Genesis chapter 2. And because of that, he works through us. And he works through relationship with us. You know, some some of you don't pray very much because for you, prayer is a one-way relationship. And it's really boring. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, you, you give God a post-it note with your to-do list and then you hit send in Jesus' name. And it's really boring. That is not prayer. 
Prayer is a two-way relationship. First of all, it's a relationship. I love to pray because I love Jesus. And I love spending time with him. But prayer is a two-way relationship. And listening to God is more important than talking. Listening to God and praying uh, the things that God is saying. It's a two-way relationship. Psalms 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Do you think that's true post-Wednesday? Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. Psalms 37, verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret. When people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes, it's been surprising how caught up we have become in whether or not there was, you know, illegal ballots, fraud, all kinds of things. Did you see what Psalm 37 verse 7 says? Be still and know. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Don't fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. And Habakkuk 2 verse 20 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. See, one of the disciplines uh, we have lost in the church is the practice of silence. And, uh, you know, just get up and sit for five minutes. Don't say a thing. Just listen to your heart. Once you can do it for five minutes, try 30. Once you can do it for 30, try longer. Be still and know that I'm God. Practicing silence is, is really important. Elijah heard God. He walked with God. And, 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 and because of his relationship, his deep, intimate relationship, God trusted Elijah. So he said, hey, buddy, kind of arm around. I love you, man. It's not going to rain except by your word. Of course, I don't think he was quite that casual. I think God, I think Elijah knew that God was holy, but nevertheless, there's this intimacy uh, that I think is amazing to me. I really believe if you'll begin to incorporate silence into your relationship God, with God, it will begin a massive shift from a one-way relationship with God you know, the to-do list, hit send in Jesus' name, that one-way relationship with God where you're trying to do all you can to please God. That's exhausting. But a two-way relationship with God is not just talking, it's listening. And when you learn to listen, when you learn to recognize his presence and his voice, I'll tell you what, prayer will not be boring anymore. And faith, Christianity, will not simply be rules and religion anymore. It will come alive. Can I just tell you, if your marriage is a one-way relationship, it sucks for somebody. Because someone's doing all the listening and someone else doing all the talking. And that's a terrible relationship to be in. Marriages have to be two-way. There has to be communication. And the same is true in your relationship with God. And by the way, parenting has to be two-way. If you're doing all the talking to your kids and not doing the listening that you need to do, it's horrible for them. It needs to be a two-way relationship. So important to, to listen. Silence in your relationship with God is what will help you experience love and grace at a whole new level in your life as you begin to allow that to penetrate your soul. Silence is transformative because the layers of your false self, which we always have when we pray, you know the false self? Where we try to act holy for a little while? 
Silence is transformative because the layers of our false self will be peeled off. And we can start becoming who we really are before God. And intimacy and friendship with God can begin to develop in our life. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. and uh, I'm going to ask you to stand. Thanks for your patience. Uh, Heavenly Father, here this morning, um, we've covered a lot of ground. Lord, I, I don't know if I've been able to deposit what you've deposited in me. I always wrestle with that. But Jesus, I just want to pray for us. Lord, we just want to lift our hearts up to you uh, during this season, Lord. Uh, our world is a lot different than it was a decade ago, two decades ago. Lord, we're in the world, like you said, Jesus, but we're not of this world. And Lord, we just want to know how to live out our faith. So I just want to ask you to strengthen us and fill us. Lord, as we pray, would you teach us how to wait on you, to listen to you, to be silent before you, to allow you to speak to us, Lord. I pray that our prayer life could become two-way communication. I pray that we'd come away with far more than we give, Jesus, that we'll learn how to, to, to recognize the thoughts that you've been placing in our heart. Maybe the day before, maybe a week before, that we'll begin to recognize how you are shepherding our soul. Lord, you're always speaking to us. You're encouraging us. You're touching us. Lord, sometimes it's through a spouse. Sometimes through our children. Sometimes it's through a neighbor. Sometimes, Lord, it's something here at church, maybe on our website with 21 days of prayer and fasting, a little video, just a little nugget that we grab. But Jesus, you're speaking to us all the time. So I ask you to help us be still and know that you are God. And we just want to grow in that during this season of prayer and fasting. Thank you for that. Thank you for hearing our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's sing this course before we go.